What are the yamas and what is their role in yoga practice? On this episode I will be speaking with Swami Padmanabha from Argentina, who teaches yoga philosophy since 20 years about non-violence, truthfulness and non-stealing. Hello Yogi, welcome to my podcast. I'm Aiko and on this show we explore ways to put spiritual theory into sustainable practice. Welcome to the podcast, Swami Padmanabha. I'm very honored to have you here. Thank you for coming. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself for those who don't know you and maybe tell us how it happened that you become a monk? Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. My pleasure to, to be here. And well, I began my spiritual journey kind of. I mean, difficult to say when, when it all began to start to, to mark a, a particular beginning point, but approximately a little bit 25 years back and 40 years now. So in my teenage years, uh, I started my inner search more officially in this particular lifetime. And uh, eventually, some years after that, I discovered the, the path of yoga the yoga philosophy and I decided to, to make that a lifestyle for me and in the context of that eventually I I pursued a monastic lifestyle which was really something quite uh, natural for me so I became a monk approximately when I was 18 19 years old and I remain as such I began as with one monastic order called brahmachari and then I accepted a vow called sannyas, which has to do with, let's say, a lifelong commitment mm, to monasticism in the context of my practice of yoga. Mm. So, again, it's something that has to do mainly with one's own nature, and I personally always felt this particular type of inclination. So I feel very happy to have that opportunity. And, well, nowadays I'm in the U.S. at the present moment, but still, as, as a Swami, as a sannyasi, generally a good part of my daily dynamics had to do with with traveling a little bit, also staying for certain moments in certain places, visiting sacred spots, going on pilgrimage, but also trying to share the, yoga, the teachings of yoga, trying to share my, my lifestyle and, and the experience I may have, if that may help others so that's basically what I'm doing nowadays as a monastic thank you and um, I was wondering if you can briefly explain your view of what the eight limbs of yoga are then get into a little bit more about the yamas in general and then elaborate on the three first yamas ahimsa, satya and asteya in the context of bringing the teachings of yoga into everyday life, also off the mat, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, as we all see, there is plenty of, let's say, yogic stuff off the mat, uh, especially before entering, <laughs> yeah. before, before entering the mat, mm-hmm. as we all see regarding the yamas. And of course, niyamas as well. They are like preliminary, preliminary, like considerations to really have in place before 
entering official the arena, if you will, of, of the mat and really engage into the successive practices of yoga in connection especially to yamas that we will be speaking today the three main ones as well the first ones so to begin with yoga the very word yoga before speaking about the eight limbs as as they are presented in the context of what's called ashtanga yoga the very word yoga as defined by patanjali in his yoga sutras where we generally also find this idea of asta anga eight limbed yoga he describes yoga in the very beginning uh, sutras of his uh, yoga sutra saying yoga chitra niroda, which has to do mainly the, the main meaning will be yoga means to uh, stop to putting that in, in contemporary terms to stop the waves of the mind to, to calm mm. the, the the ocean of the mind if you will to to attain certain uh, balance and equilibrium and, and many other things as we all see so a general idea of what's yoga and of course he then eventually presents this uh, description of this system called asta anga asta means eight and anga means like limb so it's an eight limb process of yoga which is divided into these stages yama niyama asana pranayama uh, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. Mm -hmm. So I will briefly describe them, and then, of course, we will speak more in detail about the three first yamas. So the first limb is jama. Yama will may, may be translated as abstentions. Mm -hmm. So they are subdivided mm -hmm. into five. Jama and yama will have each one of them five subdivisions. So yamas are divided in five which are Ahimsa, Satya, Asteya, Brahmacharya, and Aparigraha, which means Ahimsa means non-violence, truthfulness is Satya, the second one, Satya, truthfulness. Third one is Asteya, which has to do with refraining from stealing. So these three we will speak in detail in some minutes. And the other two are Brahmacharya, which has to do with celibacy, and Aparigraha, which has to do with refraining from uh, basically... Mm, coveting, like not not over accumulating stuff, if you will, and all of these five yamas, we could say that deal with uh, how the aspiring yogi relates to others. All these activities had to do in, in how we play out our interaction with other per, per people, basically. Sometimes we can call them the don'ts. We have the do's and the don'ts. So yamas are the abstentions, non-violence, refraining from stealing, refraining from this and that and so on. And interestingly, you, you can find quickly buried lots of parallel with, of course, the content found in other traditions. For example, just, just to begin immediately to my mind comes the Ten Commandments in the Bible, which says, do not lie, do not kill, thou shalt not. Uh, steel and so on. So if my point is these are like universal uh, considerations, very intuitive. You know, it's not just a weird yogic Indian idea that has no application anywhere else. It's really of universal application. So And of course, if one's goals are to remove consciousness from identification with the body and the mind, which yoga has a lot to do with that, we as conscious beings trying to identify more and more ourselves as conscious beings and not so much with the body-mind complex, 
for sure there are certain activities that uh, will affect that once and that will promote for example negatively the, the, the most gross urges of the body like violence stealing again deceit sexual exploitation or coveting all the things are generally at least per performed um, like with a view to improve one's bodily situation one's material uh, status and of course in the context of yoga ideally those should be uh, resisted by, by one who is striving for higher goals transcendent goals that's what yoga has to do eventually so that's some idea of on the yamas we will go back there for the three the, the first three in some minutes then we have the second link which are the niyamas we have to do with ethical observances the do's what to do and there are five also sacha santosh swadhyaya uh, tapas sorry swadhyaya and ishwar pranidhan so sacha means cleanliness santosh means contentment tapas means uh, austerity swadhyaya means study study of scripture more specifically and the last one is ishwar pranidhan which means devotion to god interestingly so these niyamas, the second anga of the Ashtanga system, deal with how the yogi cultivates uh, his or her own lifestyle. It's not that much in relationship with others, but in relation to oneself. The first one we may connect more, more with more destructive potentials of the body that are somehow controlled by following the yamas, the first limb. And then when that's in place, we go to the second link when consciousness can be turned more inward toward personal refinement, if you will, more introspection. So we will see how all of these eight angas are progressively more and more refined than the previous one. So each limb furthers and deepens uh, this internal progression. So some words about niyamas. Then the third aspect of the Ashtanga system is asana which has to do with posture and focuses mainly on uh, stretches and postures with, with certain, with a view of preparing the body of the yogi to sit for prolonged periods in meditation. The asanas in themselves are not the, the goal, if you will, of yoga, but the means for enhancing one's meditative condition. And so in this aspect of yoga, this aspect of yoga asana is the one that is most visibly uh, known in the West that has been mostly exported, if you will, to our part of the world, but sometimes it's taken out of, of the context of this whole system, of what comes before, what comes after. So it's important to have everything in, in proper context, basically, not only asanas in and of themselves, but they as a means to something else and also with some prerequisite in order to ideally engage in them. So that's the third one, asana. The fourth one is pranayama. So pranayama has to do with breath control, breathing control. So when the when we engage successfully in asana, we are sitting properly after again leading a proper lifestyle with the first two uh, yama niyama. Then we can sit, and when we sit properly, if you will, when we engage in in proper posture, then we can focus our attention on stilling the mind controlling the mind and pranayama has to do with it because breath control will uh, enhance this process of 
fixing the mind of breath control. I mean, your mind will become more and more controlled in connection to controlling one's breathing. So by regulating, by slowing the movement of breath, the mind too also becomes regulated and calm. So that's the fourth one. The fifth, the fifth one is Pratyahara. Pratyahara has to do with uh, withdrawal of the senses, like retiring the senses from their respective sense objects. Now you are, when we already sit, trying to control our mind by breathing on some level, leading, having led a particular lifestyle, and now we start to retire, to withdraw each respective senses, removing, removes the attention, removes our focus from the engagement with sense objects. Now we know there are five of them. We have sight, sound, taste, and so on. So the idea is gradually entering into that. And finally, we have six, seven, and eight, which are somehow grouped together and connected. The sixth one is dharana, which has to do with concentration. The seventh is dhyana, which means meditation. And the eighth is samadhi, which means sometimes translated as trance or full meditative absorption. So these three, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, concentration, meditation, full meditative absorption are the last three limbs of the Ashtanga system. And these three are essentially, I will say, different degrees of concentrative intensity. And, and, and these three are becoming finer and finer and they converge, culminate in what's called samadhi, and specifically Patanjali calls it like a realization by awareness of awareness of one's own nature. Sometimes that's called asampaknyata samadhi, where there is nothing left but pure awareness, Patanjali's vision, basically. So having shared a brief uh, summary of these eight limbs, we will now concentrate on, on the first three, jamas, that are the main topic for today, which is ahimsa, satya, and asteya. These appear... Of course, also in the Bhagavad Gita, another famous yogic text, but more classically, they are connected to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, so they appear in the, in the Sutra number 30, in the second part of the book. So, <clears throat> Ahimsa, let's begin with Ahimsa, which is translated as non-violence. Himsa means violence, so Ahimsa means non-violence. In Sanskrit, on many occasions, the A at the beginning creates the opposite meaning of a word without that letter. So it has to do with avoiding, of course, violence, avoiding kroda. Kroda means anger, which are which is sometimes typically depicted as one of the vices that we may engage in, kamma, kroda, lova, mat, mohamatsarya, and lust, greed, anger, illusion, pride, envy. So Ahimsa is quite connected we could say to all of them, but more directly with this avoiding the crowd, avoiding the anger. So non-violence is a really, uh, even the term ahimsa is quite popular nowadays in Western world. And it's really fame. Gandhi was someone who made it very famous with his non-cooperation movement. That was the principal motto of his movement, ahimsa. We find in Buddhism a lot of emphasis also on non-violence or compassion, which is another way of saying ahimsa. Again, we have these commandments, Christian commandments say, those shall not kill. Again, we are speaking about some form of ahimsa. So 
here this is the very first jump interestingly so it begins with this the fact that it begins with this is trying to and the commentators to the yoga sutras also and patanjali himself they draw a special attention in the direction of ahimsa for example in indian tradition there is something called upakram and upasamhara which means according to what's said at the beginning of a text and at the end that will speak very very strongly about the, the most important thing of that text so how the text begins how that is, does it end so how this begins ahimsa how the yamas begins ahimsa so that means that particular statement in this case ahimsa carry more weight than the other ones so in this sense ahimsa is considered the most important yama all the commentators mostly all at least of the yoga sutras agree with this and therefore it leads the rest of the list and interestingly of course we could say also as ahimsa is the first yama and it leads the list yamas are the first anga of the ashtanga system and it, they also lead the remaining one suggesting that one's own yogic accomplishment if you will will remain limited uh, until the yamas are internalized and put into practice i mean as much as we embrace yama eventually in yama we will be able to engage in the remaining in the other one sometimes people nowadays say i want to meditate <laughs> and according to this system of patanjali meditation will be the seventh stage no? so there are mm -hmm. some things to do before or, or similar with asana i want to do asana first patanjali will say first you have yama niyama so there are some considerations that will for sure enhance our asana and our practice so ahimsa uh, let's speak a little bit about what's ahimsa which are the implications of ahimsa Vyasa, who is one of the commentators on the sutras he mentions describes ahimsa as not injuring and he mentions three levels or three dimensions to that not injuring any living creature anywhere at any time Deshakalapatra, if you will. Not, not injuring any living creature anywhere at any time. It speaks about an entity, a place, and a moment. Of course, this sounds it may sound too much, but at least he's putting like the ideal standard there. Of course, one has to perform one's dharma in life, one has to engage doing so many things, and one may it may be impossible for one to avoid harming certain living entities like bacteria or insects when one is using the broom or <laughs> bathing oneself of cleaning but at least the idea is as far as possible one has to avoid harming even an insect so for example also we find in the Manu Samhita in the Dharma Shastra which is codes of behavior from composed by Manu classical India he will say that to 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 protect living entities one should even inspect the ground constantly as one is walking by night by day because of the risk of walking on an ant or whatever you know so he's like to that level he's trying to, and, and we will explain why this is not some form of obsession but it's very common sense idea for example even we find in other communities it's not strictly the indian yoga but it's connected to that for example the jains uh, they take they have taken this principle of non-violence further even if you will than any other tradition and, and they require they are required to follow very strictly to minimize any possible violence to other creatures for example they are 
They do not eat root vegetables since some creatures in the soil may be harmed when uprooting these vegetables. They uh, do not engage in farming activities for the same reason. They reject any type of military career. They do not cook after sunset because some insects will be attracted to the flame at night and perish there. <laughs> or they wear some like uh, gauze, like we were now in COVID, <laughs> to cover their mouths as to not inhale any tiny creatures. Or when sweeping the road, if they sweep the road before they walk as to not step up any creature and so on. This long list. So again, some of these practices may seem extreme, but they have to be considered uh, within the parameters of Hindu uh, philosophy, which is what? That all living beings contain an Atma, contain a soul. Someone is there. So all Atmas are spiritually equal. I mean, in one sense, there's no difference between an ant and a human being. In terms of dress and vehicle, but in terms of substance, it's the same. So from that perspective, these practices help to recognize the common atman atmanness, if you will, the common existence of a soul among all beings. So there is a, a logic to that. That's the point. Mm -hmm. And at least to begin with, because we may not be able to follow all these standards in detail, but something that is really emphasized in the context of yoga and ahimsa is one, that one should be very clear about the fact, for example, that eating meat or nourishing one's body um, at the expense of the flesh of other living beings, let's say, is really not considered for aspiring yogis. That's really um, um, emphasized. It's like for yogis, aspiring yogis, vegetarian diet is non-negotiable, if you will, because mm. it's really about uh, understanding this is not healthy for the body, healthy for the mind. This is not a natural um, diet. And diet is really influential. Whatever you eat that will really affect your state of mind, one direction or the other. And of course, we have the karmic principle also. And like if you are involved in violent acts uh, of any kind, that requires that the person involved will receive the reaction for that, you no know, action, reaction. So inflicting violence, unnecessary violence, is, is the quality of tamas, according to, to yoga, which means like uh, darkness, if you will. So eating meat, in one sense, is, increases the tamasic potential in one's mind and, and enhances further ignorance. So that's not becoming favorable for yoga. But of course, ahimsa, just some few words before going to satya, ahimsa is not only limited to physical violence, but also ahimsa should be ideally followed not only in, in, in acts, in deeds, but in thoughts, in words. All, all of this will be properly aligned. For example, up, giving up an, a spirit of hatred, malice, mentally even. All this has to do with Ahimsa, not only externally avoiding that, but internally, because it, those will produce tendencies to injure, injure others through thoughts, through words. This includes, again, avoiding violence in the form of harsh verbal expressions, causing, causing anxiety or fear in others with what you say, gossip to put it in more contemporary terms. And of course, we are in, in the times, digital times, social media is all over there, and that has a lot to do with gossip and to speak uh, untruth. You know, that will be connected to sati, of course, as well. But lots of violence can be uh, 
expressed through that. So the idea is to be very careful if we want to embrace yoga properly with all the things. So all this, again, we'll, we'll see us. Ahimsa is the main expression of the yamas. All of the other ones, Satya, Steya, will be connected with Ahimsa. And one last thing connected to Ahimsa is that, of course, what is mentioned by the great yoga teachers is that the degree of violence will also be determined by intent, your intention. Because sometimes you may engage in some act of violence without bad intention, without hatred, uh, maybe defending ourselves from some attack, or you are cutting the grass. You can say strictly that's a form of violence, but that's not at the same level as murdering your own parents, if you will, in cold blood or something. <laughs> but of course, it is say that even yogis sometimes abo- avoid attacking others in self-defense. Mm-hmm. And they and they and they in this way they attempt to inflict as little aggression as possible to their environment. There is one nice story of one scorpion and one yogi. They were riding on a boat, and the scorpion was drowning in a little section of the boat which was filled with water. So the scorpion was drowning in that water, and the yogi was trying to save the scorpion. And the, every time the yogi tried to save the scorpion, tried to bite the yogi. So the yogi insisted, and the other person, other people who was there said, what are you doing? Don't you see the scorpion? Every time you try to save him, he's trying to kill you, basically, to bite you. And the yogi said, what can I do? The nature of the scorpion is to bite. The nature of the yogi is to, to be compassionate. <laughs> I cannot go against my nature. So that's the point. Ideally, when you really reach an accomplished level of yoginess, Ahimsa will be like a natural expression in our behavior. So, sorry for the extension of some words in Ahimsa because it's the main one considered in this jams. So then we have Satya. Satya has to do with truthfulness, being truthful. Uh, and of course, Vyasa, who also comments on this, he defines truth or truthfulness as one's words and thoughts being in exact correspondence. What I'm thinking, what I'm saying, are in exact correspondence to fact, to whatever is known in practice. So that's important. Once I was, this idea came to me that this has to do with whatever I'm thinking, I speak about that. Whatever I speak about, I do in practice. So words, thoughts, words, and acts all in the same line. That has a lot to do with satyam, with being truthful, not only not lying, because that may, you may, we may use that idea in a very basic level. And of course we have to begin somewhere, but satya has to do, to be as truthful as we can. And again, we are in, in the era of post-truth, sometimes they call it in social media, sometimes even, this has this may apply in, in social media, sometimes we want to show ourselves, a side of ourselves that is not true. We, t- we want to take a picture and show that I have a perfect life, ideal life. I'm, I'm, I'm very, everything is in place. And may- maybe that's not true. Maybe you need to work on so many things. So the idea of showing something you are not, that's a way that goes against this satya. Mm-hmm. And this happens a lot in this world because we are so fearful that we won't be loved, we won't be accepted unless we show ourselves to be perfect. Because that's the message in, in, in the material realm. Unless you are perfect, nobody will care about you. But the important thing is to understand, I can be imperfect and I can be accepted and loved, unconditional love. So yoga ultimately will take us there. That has to be with sati as well. 
so in connection with sati, of course, is sati is a lot connected again with thought, with acts, and with speech. For example, if you are sharing knowledge to others, that knowledge should not be deceitful, that should not be misleading, that should not be devoid of value. It should be for the benefit of everyone. All this had to do with satyam, not for the harm of anyone. Shankara also commenting on the sutras, he quotes Manu again in this context, famous line that says, Satambriyat Parambriyat, Priambriyat, sorry, which basically means, uh, let him not speak what is true, but unkind. I mean, if you you may be speaking about something that is true, but if it's if that's unkind, that's not so truthful actually. But ideally, he says, let him speak what is kind and not untrue. Because you may be saying the truth, but you may be saying that in a very harsh, violent way. So that will go against Ahimsa. And, and in this connection, there is a famous story also that the commentators share, which comes from an episode of the Mahabharata, which involves Yudhisthira as an example of, of deception, at the opposite of Satya. During the Mahabharata war, this great war with the Bhagavad Gita was uh, spoken, we have Dronacharya, who is the enemy of Yudhisthira, and he was attacking the army of the Pandavas. So trying to break his fighting spirit, to say that Drona was misinformed. And see, he was told that your son Ashwatam had been killed in the battle. So Drona, he went to Yudhisthira to ask about that. Yudhisthira was known as Dharma himself, truthfulness himself. He was renowned for never having told a lie, you can imagine. So what, what he asked Ashwa, uh, Drona, Yudhisthira, it was true that Ashwatam had been killed or not? So Yudhisthira said yes. Mm -hmm. But it is said that he was incapable of lying. So he forced himself, as he responded, to think of an elephant also named Ashwatam, who was also killed on that, in that field that day. Because again, actually Ashwatam, Drona's son, was not killed. <laughs> but Yudhisthira said yes, he was technically lying, although he said, yeah, the elephant Ashwatam, without Drona's hearing that. So this resulted in a technically truthful reply because the, ele the elephant Ashwatthama was killed. But since the thought of Yudhisthira's mind was of the elephant, the knowledge transferred to Drona was in relation to Drona's son. So there was something that was not Satya. So it is said that Yudhisthira's words were purposefully deceitful, misleading, uh, and, and, their and their intention was to mislead. Of course, in a certain wider context, we don't have time to explain that. But all this led to Drona's downfall, but also to say that the deceit also calls the Yudhisthira's chariot wheels, which had up to that point had been floating above the ground due to the power of his dharma. At that point, the, the wheels of the chariot touched the ground. He, he went a little lower because of that act. So some stories share in this connection. And... Uh, Again, connect, we have to remember, bear in mind that all the jamas are subservient to ahimsa. So because of that, we speak satya, we speak the truth. It should not cause harm to others. It should not cause ahimsa. It should, it should be ahimsa. So a classical example in this connection that I may speak the truth, but in a harmful way, it's, I don't know, if I'm walking and, and a series of thieves come and ask me, have you seen such merchant? That was escaping from us. And if I will be truthful I, and I saw him, I say, yes, he went on that way. You follow. So I'm speaking the truth, but I am helping the thieves to catch the merchant and steal and kill him, maybe. 
So that will result in some form of harm, of himsa. So that's not qualified as real truth, as satya, because ahimsa is being uh, overridden, if you will. So again, this underscores how important is ahimsa. Truth never must must never result in violence, basically. In other words, the, the important point here is if there is ever a conflict between the yamas, if observing one yama results in not observing other yama, then ahimsa must always be respected first. So that, that's an important point that will put in context everything else. And one more thing in connection to, um, to Satyam that is commented by Hari Harananda, another commentary from the sutras, he will say that avoiding untruth, which has to do with Satyam, extends to the point even of abstaining from reading fiction. <laughs> because, again, we may be connected to something that is not actually true. And the point is the yogi is always trying to contemplate spiritual truths. He's not occupying his, her mind with fictional, worldly, trivial issues, fantasy, daydreaming, imagination. That's also sometimes called maya shakti or illusion. So satya has to do with sat. Sat means real, with sattva. Sattva has to do with the beingness of everything, the state where everything is as it is, with authenticity, with being transparent, honest. Satya has to do with all this. So next and third yama from today, this I will describe it briefly. This is asteya. So asteya has to do with refraining from stealing or we could say avoiding another vice called lobha lobha means greed so trying not to be devoured if you will by that influence so as you may imagine the asteya has to do with uh, not taking things that belong to to others basically or even not harboring the desire to do so, because you may not be doing that externally, but in your mind, you may be contemplating that opportunity. So all this has to do with asteya. And this later aspect of not even contemplating in your mind that it's important because, again, if you are contemplating that in your mind, for sure at one point, it will become an act in itself. Every action is initiated in the mind. So whatever you are thinking about, most probably that will take you to act in a particular way. So the more one desires something, the more inclined you will become to acquire it at some point. Mm -hmm. So all this has to do in line, mind, words, this, again. And it is said by, by the commentator that even if you find a, a treasure trove or jewels by chance in the street, ideally, you should not be taking them because they belong to someone else. Mm -hmm some money in the street, if you will. We can take that and steal that. You can just be indifferent to that. Or, of course, the highest option is you can take that. And if you know who is the owner, you may give it back to that person. So some ideas, some words regarding these three principles of um, Ahimsa, Satya, and Asteya. Thank you very much. It was very clear and well explained. I was wondering if you could uh, share some examples in your own life where um, where situation have come up uh, come up where you had to consider the principle and consciously like act 
in that way. Mm. Yes, yes, of course. There has to be examples because, as we mentioned, these are these things are to be expressed in, in practice. As we mentioned in the beginning, mm. yoga yoga has to do with linking. Also, it's a linking process. So, and and these yamas, as we also mentioned, have a lot to do with our relationship with others. So, personally, mm. as as a practitioner, as a monk, I live in community. So that has a lot to do with relation relationships every single day relationship with other people that i live with in the ashram or that i may meet and sharing the message in my particular yoga path which is bhakti which is the yoga of devotion and these three yamas also they play themselves out in a very unique and extremely positive way so for example i don't know in the context of uh, ahimsa or non-violence um Yes, of course, in our tradition, in my practice, in our tradition, I follow a vegetarian diet or vegan diet, depending the case. I, I take only ahimsa, dairy products in my particular case. Um, but also, my point is that for us, in our particular tradition, to be non-violent ultimately means to give full, to give myself fully, to share full love. I mean, it's... it's the, the, because you may say non-violent, it's still a negative description of something. Do not be violent. Mm. So what's the exact opposite of that? Be loving, be compassionate. Mm. So that's very important for us. Uh, in our tradition of bhakti, divine love is the long-term goal. Uh, but before reaching such a goal, because as, as I mentioned, we have to begin somewhere and we cannot go neurotic or dis- get discouraged because... Uh, this is too much. Uh, it's not for me. Yeah, we have. We can always begin somewhere, wherever we are. And uh, compassion is a very important thing to develop some universal compassion for all. It's important. Uh, and I, I've seen that on a daily basis a lot in my living together with peers, living with other monks or with other practitioners, and how much when you get accustomed to live with somebody. Uh, you may lose this sense of compassion. You may you may lose this sense of empathy, and you may start to see other people as in ordinary terms and treat them superficially, and and, and forget how extraordinary every person is, how extraordinary the potential of every person is, and and continue respecting that and venerating that on a daily basis. So maybe I'm not referring to a specific situation, but to something that is. A specific on a daily basis, which is to relate with other people, whether I live in an ashram as a monk or you live as in, in your house with, with your husband, wife, children, whatever the case, it's important. And I consider a very practical thing of this ahimsa is to try to, to appreciate the sacredness of everything, every person, every situation, and, and not just we become accustomed to see everything in ordinary terms. That will be a form of <clears throat> of violence. No, so I, I feel that every time that I invoke this ahimsa principle in my relationships, it's kind of updates and upgrades my vision of of other people, and I really get to see them in a new light. Not not only limiting them to my own projection of them, my prejudice, but to really see. There's much more to that, of course, and that will expand my own sense of being. And in connection with Satya, for example, truthfulness, I speak a lot about 
philosophy and I share this spiritual truth. So as a speaker of truth, if you will, I have a lot to consider the capacity of each person in the audience and as well, of course, my own capacity to speak about that. As we spoke before, I can speak the truth, but I may discourage someone while speaking the truth because I may say something too high or too deep or too overwhelming or in a very crude way and not adapt myself to every person. So I feel that's a very important challenge for me to be compassionate because that's, again, that's connected again to Ahimsa, but also to be truthful, not only in the name of, I've told the truth. So if you like, great. If you don't like, it's your fault. No, it's not some word like this. One should try to, to present the truth in a tasteful way, attracting way. And sometimes that may lead to certain what we call teaching techniques as the famous example of the mother telling the, the kid, asking where, where I come from. And say, there's some bird put you in the chimney. And, and the boy will be happy with that. It's, it's enough for him at that time. So sometimes we, we, we have to know when to speak and we have to know when to stop speaking because sometimes the temptation is to speak more than when the other person can digest. So that requires lots of hymns, again, of empathy in the context of this satya. So I think I, I really learned a lot on a daily basis and trying when presenting this message with with the audience i i mean i i'm supposedly the one teaching them but they they teach me a lot as well and connected to asteya or not stealing basically well they take so many forms this you no know, because you, this is not only about possessions or money i mean that can refer to not stealing others for example punctuality we spoke recently about that that if you are not punctual you are stealing others time so you are failing regarding a stay in that connection. So, And I have always lots of talks and commitments, so I like to be punctual. <laughs> so as I remain in, in the Asteya realm field, basically. You know? But also so many other things. When you want something from others, when you compare yourself to others and you live in that platform of comparing, he has this, I don't have that, she's like that, I'm not like this. So you start to desire what they have. You start to desire what they are instead of taking responsibility for your own self and seeing your own potential. So I will take that as a form of a stay. You, you are stealing, if you will, trying to take others' things instead of paying attention to what's in you. And also some important thing, and, that, and I try to practice that on, on a daily basis because it's so easy to be misled and be distracted about what others have and are and not pay attention to how you should become whatever you have to become. And also in our philosophy regarding not taking something from others, of course, important point for us is nothing belongs to us, which is a very strong point. But ultimately, the question is not what does belong to me, what can I take, but who I belong to. Ultimately, that's the, the real question. To gradually understand all the things that I think are mine, I hear today and gone tomorrow. So if I am developing a sense of I, according to what I think is mine, eventually that will evaporate in time. And, and that's why in, in the Indian tradition, samsara, or the repeated cycle of birth and death, sometimes is described as ahammameti, which means to maintain a sense of I, depending on what I think belongs to me. So if I am something according to what belongs to me, what if I realize nothing belongs to me? What remains of I, of me? So it's important, yoga has to do with that, understanding I am something 
without the necessity of having, of taking, of making mine, my house, my country, my wife, my money, my car. We can understand no, no, none of those things are mine because I cannot keep them forever. So what's that thing that is there forever? That has a lot to do with steya, not stealing, not claiming floor, false sense of proprietorship, if you will. So also, again, mm-hmm. on a daily basis, on my practice, I have to invoke these ideals in my practice, in my relationship with others. And it's not easy. I, I never use the word easy. <laughs> so it's a, a healthy challenge. And again, it's, I think it's important to, to engage in that in a sustainable way, according to each one's capacity, but understanding in a common sense way how important they are in, in our yoga practice. Yeah. And do you have any kind of tricks or tips on how to to do it, to keep it in mind also during the daily life? Because, you know, some people when they have work and family and this and that, and it's easy just to forget the, like the meaning of mm-hmm. things. Yeah, well, for us, there is a very important word, which we call sadhana. And sadhana means practice. And practice means not necessarily, of course, doing some things specifically in our, for example, certain meditation or prayer or study or keeping good company, but it has a lot to do with keeping in mind these important things. There's not like shortcut. There's not like magical trick that I will press this secret button and I will be able to do all the things without mm. the trouble of going through <laughs> some sacrifices, some challenges. So I will say, first of all, it's important to understand there is no secret trick, but there is some, of course, deep knowledge that will guide us in our actions. So it's important to be nourished by that knowledge on a daily basis. Try to make this uh, part of our daily life not once a week, but trying to or once a month, but trying to incorporate as much as we can these ideals by hearing about them, by keeping proper company, mm-hmm. and and failing for sure. <laughs> That's part of the learning. It's not, not not expecting that I will be successful in this from today, from one day to the other. This will take time, so that will require humility and patience. So many other virtues mm-hmm. appear in this scene, becoming necessary tolerance. But all those things are the ones that actually are making us grow, even though we may feel them as painful at one moment. But it's not really painful, I mean, ultimately, because it's bestowing such a high benefit. So it's important to have good, I will say, good company, good guidance that gives us lots of hope, lots of support. And if you are at home or working in the world society, I mean, all of them are, all those situations are, possibilities to express all the things basically i mean you can express non-violence when driving in the street and someone is hard playing the horn too too loud or going too fast you have to to learn how to deal with that or when you go back home you have your wife your children they're crying playing screaming jumping and you may think okay i have to tolerate this but you you should also think they are tolerating me in so many ways as well mm. so it's something reciprocal always it's not that only me i have to do all this no it's this is for everyone and mm. for sure there are so many people who are doing this more than us mm. but but yeah trying to be introspective and think okay my particular life and and daily dynamics how this 
virtues, these practices take shape in my particular life? How I can may become better in being ahimsa? How can I become more truthful? To some beginning point that we may find, oh, this will be a good beginning. How can I become a better person regarding Asteya? So that requires also some nice uh, introspection mm. in all of us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, for whoever wants to listen more from Swami Padmanabha, I will leave some links in the description with his channels. He has his own podcast. And uh, I'm very, very grateful for everything you share with us. And I hope I can invite you again in some other episodes to maybe talk more about the other Yama and maybe Niyama. And thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I hope this episode fulfills its purpose of inspiring you. If you like it, feel free to share it, give a review or a rating, subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch at aikoyogareiki.com. Namaste.